Uh, we're going to be looking at the genealogy today. And I thought it'd be fun if I wore a pair of jeans and then I could say, look, it's the genealogy. And... But <laughs> I heard my grandmother's voice in the background and my German fashion sensibility kicked in and I didn't wear jeans. Believe it or not, Germans do have uh, some fashion sensibility. Yeah, Gerhard, what's on your lederhosen? I wasn't going to wear the lederhosen. Uh, that would be really embarrassing. I probably don't fit in them anymore, so I thought I'd just wear slacks. No jeans today. Anyway, we are in the genealogy of Matthew, and so if you can put one finger there, that's great, Matthew 1, and the other finger should go in Ruth, so I'll give you some time to find there. We're in week three of celebrating the Incarnation, and it is such a miracle, as we've just sung about, that God would come and dwell with us. Uh, and it's funny, because this, this value, this term incarnation, keeps coming up in my life. This week I was at a, a biblical counseling session, and uh, one of the attendees brought up the word uh, empathy. And as we're talking about that, somebody said, you know, isn't the incarnation the ultimate empathic move? You know, empathy is where we try to put our, ourselves in the position of someone, the zits and leben, the, the, their feelings, their thoughts, how they are interpreting a situation. And Jesus pulls off this ultimately empathic move by becoming human being at Christmas. And that's what we're celebrating. The Bible says, this, says it this way, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and found and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. So he knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows our pain. And believe it or not, he probably knows it better than you do because he experienced it both as a man, but he experiences it daily as God. And so he has unique insight into your condition, your concerns. He's endured pain and suffering, injustice, betrayal, false accusations and disappointments, just like we have. And so he can speak authoritatively into our pain and suffering. And I think that's something that we need to remember when we consider the incarnation today. This is our God, a God who is in charge of the cosmos, yet a God who chose to live among his creations. A God who can empathically connect with us like no other. I think that's amazing. He's the God who lovingly works through us seemingly insignificant people and through our seemingly insignificant matters. And he does great things for them, with them. No cause is too small for God and no problem is too big. And that's what we're going to see today in the life of Ruth. The strange, one of the strange additions in Matthew's genealogy. Levi is calling them strange footnotes. We're going to see that God does great things through plain and ordinary people. So we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew 1 and, and that genealogy. Uh, and I hope by now you're getting a flavor for what a genealogy is. It's a separate literary genre. I don't know if you knew that. Like, just like we read narrative differently than we read poetry, or we read poetry different than we, we read apocalyptic, so we also have to look at narratives differently. They're forming double duty. They do uh, serve a unique purpose in Middle Eastern uh, literature. They're true and historical, absolutely, but they're more than that. They do, exist to, they do exist to lend specific claims to ancestral line, lineage and that kind of thing, but they do more than that. 
They're meant to teach and to recall. And in Matthew's genera- uh, ge- genealogy in particular, we know that it was proven to written, uh, written to prove that Jesus was in the line of David, but Matthew is doing what every other Middle Eastern writer is doing when he quotes a genealogy. He's trying to tell us something through the characters that he is bringing to light. This genealogy has five women in it, in a genealogy that only needs to include men. So this is double conspicuous. We really need to look and examine the lives of these women to see what is Matthew's agenda. What does he want us to see? So let's read from the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, by Zerah, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Adimadab, and Adimadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I hope you've got your other finger in Ruth. And uh, just as we open Ruth... It is a bit of a bigger book to tackle in one sitting. So by God's grace, I'm just going to walk you through some of the highlights and hopefully we'll get somewhere. So we're going to pick up in uh, verse 1. In the days when judges... Oh, sorry, I did want to paint the basic plot line first. The basic plot of the story is this, if you've never read the book of Ruth. We have three widows, and this story tells us the way that they navigate the challenge of being without the protection of their husbands. And we'll find that each of these people have a choice to make. uh, And they have to make these choices. And their goals are the hope of finding security, physical security, finding love, and leaving a legacy. And this is the story of how these women make their choices. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the city of Moab. And he and his wife had two sons. The name of the man was Amalek, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahon and, and Chilion. And they were Ephraites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Emelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Mahon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, each of you return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband." And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So we'll hit pause there. This uh, situation uh, is a a dangerous one for these three widows. They have very few possibilities for income. And you have to remember, there's no social support or welfare in these days. There's a real risk that they can starve, especially with a famine going through the land. Naomi's only hope is to return back to her hometown and, and hopefully pick up some charity based on the fact that she is a a senior widow. But Ruth and Orpah, on the other hand, can still remarry. They still 
have other options. And if Ruth or Orpha want to succeed in life, have security in the legacy of children, uh, they have every reason to leave their mother-in-law behind. And that brings us to the scene in which we see a glimpse of Ruth's unique loyalty to Naomi. Let's look in chapter 1, verse 16. Matthew wants us to see and to remember this specific dialogue. That's why he includes it in the genealogy of Jesus. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. For you, uh, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Orpha, Naomi's other daughter, does not have a dialogue like that. She simply leaves and heads back to mom's house, hopefully to find a husband in Moab, hopefully to find some security. But Ruth remains. She chooses to honor the mother of her deceased husband. There's something about Naomi that compelling to Ruth. And there's something about Ruth and her character that we're going to see in this story. They end up having a relationship that's deeper than bloodline. And in some ways, this provides a little glimpse of what the New Testament community ought to be like. Blood counts less than fellowship in the Lord. And we can see with this sort of motley duo of daughter and mother-in-law, uh, a strange companionship that transcends boundaries of ethnicity, of economic status, and of age. And I think that's how it paints a portrait of what our church community should look like. You know, a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law are sort of proverbial for conflict in our society, are they not? Like, we have this instrument that we use in the OR laparoscopically. It's, it, you, you jam it in there, and it's got, like, these teeth and clamps, and it's like, you know... It's like worse than the bunny in, in the Holy Grail. Like, it's a scary-looking instrument, and we call it the mother-in-law. And we call it the mother-in-law for a reason, because mother-in-laws are vicious and bullying and that kind of thing, right? And, and, and yet, here in the Bible, we're seeing the daughter-mother-in-law relationship painted in a different light, and the difference is they love the Lord. Like I said, there's something compelling about Naomi to Ruth. And I like to think that like, we celebrate the loyalty of Ruth often when we read the story, but I think there's something more going on here. You have to remember that Ruth had years to observe Naomi, 10 years according to the text. And somehow Naomi's life, character, and worship were compelling to Ruth. Notice what she says. Your God will be my God. This worship in the home mattered. It's like what we read in, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians when Paul describes the behavior of a godly spouse, how that can bring an unbelieving spouse under the lordship of Christ. And uh, that's kind of what we're talking about this morning with child dedication, isn't it? Right? Your kids are watching you, right? Josiah? Like they're watching you every day, <laughs> every second, right? And they're saying, what's dad doing? How's he worshiping? Right? And I wonder, as I look in the mirror, when I'm tired or when I'm grumpy, when I'm entitled, does my love, my character, my life, my worship, 
inspire that kind of feeling that Ruth has for Naomi. I think that's a challenge. Remember, our children are always watching. Uh, Craig Brennan, he says, he's got this line, he says, you are who you are at home. Right? Is that not true? Like, we can fake it a lot in public, but at home, all our sins are laid bare. All of our brokenness is there for our wife and our children to behold. What we do at home matters, and it mattered here, and it was determinative in Ruth's conversion. Let that be a lesson to us. So these two widows, they return to Naomi's hometown, uh, the city of Bethlehem. And here we get to see a little bit more about Ruth, about what she's made of. She immediately gets to work. You know, widows and the poor, they were allowed, uh, there was no social support, no welfare, so how did they get food? How did they provide a living for themselves? Well, God provided a way. Uh, in the New Testament, it's found in the words of, of Paul when he says, those who do not work shall not eat. And in the Old Testament, that principle was acted out in the process of something called gleaning. The harvesters would move through a field and they would harvest, but God's word tells us that the harvesters were to leave a portion behind for the widows, for the poor. And they were, these widows and poor were allowed to follow the harvester and glean the excess wheat. And it was hard work. And I'll tell you, the harvesters, the first time they went through, for pound for pound, made a lot more wheat than the person gleaning. The person gleaning had to work much harder. But that didn't push, put uh, Ruth off at all. You know, the Bible is very real about the reality of things. The text specifically points out that there's no police, remember, that, people, that Ruth was at the mercy of others. There was a real risk of her being sexually harassed or even raped in the fields at the hands of sinful men. So we have this woman who's working harder than anyone else, enduring danger, and yet she bravely proceeds. And that's her character. And she collects not only for her own needs, but also for the needs of her widowed mother-in-law. So we see the character, the gumption of Ruth. And you know what? We, we see it, but the characters in our story also saw it. And she gets gossiped about by others. And soon this gossip, and it's good gossip, don't we all want to be gossiped like that? Right? Good gossip reaches the ear of the guy who owns the land, Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi. This inner beauty of Ruth and her loyalty towards her mother-in-law and her integrity are described actually by Boaz in verse 11 of chapter 2. You can flip ahead there and read along with me. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me of how you left your father and mother and native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And maybe this is a bit of a sidebar, but I want you to, to bear with me for a second. I, I, I feel a dad impulse, okay? You guys remember a couple weeks ago when we're working through 1 Timothy, uh, Levi talked about what uh, modesty and inner beauty were all about. And it's, we're seeing that fleshed out in the story of Ruth here. What is inner beauty? What is, what is it that quiet and gentle spirit that Paul talks about? Well, it's illustrated in the story, so let's, let's take a look. It looks something like this in the story of Ruth. This is what John Piper observes in her character. 
No doubt that the writer of Ruth wants us to admire and imitate Ruth. So this is a prescriptive story. See and do, right? She takes initiative to care for her destitute mother-in-law. She is humble and meek and does not put herself forward presumptuously. And she works hard from sunup to sundown. Initiative, lowliness, industry, these are worthy traits. You know, we see the, the, the motley group of people in Jesus' lineage, and we're not to emulate all of them. Like, I hope you guys aren't going to go out and do what Judah did, right? But Ruth is here as a prescriptive example. She is beautiful. She is beautiful. She has the inner beauty of a godly woman. It's not the kind of beauty that Instagram and TikTok are peddling and not the kind of beauty that our culture is compelling our young women to strive for at their own destruction. No, this is the kind of inner beauty that God delights in. And Boaz saw that, and he was drawn to it. And so the advice here, girls, young girls especially, is a bit banal. You you catch what you fish for. You catch what you bait for. And if you bait... For a man with low tops and outer beauty, you're going to catch a shallow and arrogant and ignorant man who's only interested in your outer beauty. And when it no longer titillates his fancy and it doesn't keep his interest more anymore, he's going to leave you. But if you entice a man with godliness, you'll most likely catch a godly man. We're to see that too in this story. And that's what Ruth did. Later, Boaz says of her, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone off after young men, whether rich or poor. It appears that Ruth had many options. But she was wise. She looked for a godly man and she attracted him with her integrity and was rewarded richly. That brings us to the next passage that highlights Ruth's initiative. Much like the story of Rahab that we studied last week, Ruth presents us with a woman of action a woman who is not passive in her faith, but reaches out to lay hold of God's blessing. Just like Jacob wrestles with God all night and says, I won't let go, I won't let go, I won't let go until you give me a blessing. Ruth is that kind of person. She reaches out for God's blessing. We see this most clearly in chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. And so Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drank and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And if you've never read the book of Ruth before, this is like weird, right? What is this like creeping around in the granary at night and uncovering someone's feet and lying at it? What's this all about? And what is this redeemer? What does this mean? So we'll walk you through that. A redeemer, that that phrase, that, that word is often translated, you may have kinsman redeemer. Who's got kinsman redeemer in their Bible for that? Yeah. And it's, it's a specific term that uh, indicated a role that was to be played by men in the Old Testament. It was one of the provisions that God made for widows. 
Uh, similar to the situation with Tamar that we learned about two weeks ago, uh, widows usually remarried into the kin group, the extended kin group. And this uh, uh, process was called Leverite marriage. And if you're curious about the details, you can look them up in Deuteronomy 25. We don't have time. But basically, Leverite marriage was designed to protect vulnerable women and ensure that a family name was carried out for the deceased. So in our story, Boaz is one of these redeemers, and he's the eligible one who can rescue uh, this widow from hard times and perpetuate a family name. The, the detail of Ruth lying at his feet is a weird one, and you'll probably find different interpretations in different commentaries. I like the one from Tyndale. Old Testament commentary says this, The context makes it clear that laying at his feet, this, this describes a way whereby Ruth signified to Boaz her desire to marry him. Ordinary methods of approach were no doubt difficult, and this provided a suitable medium. But why it should be done in this way, we don't know, and nor do we know whether this was a widely prescribed custom or not. So that's from the Tyndale Old Testament commentary. My wife didn't do this for me. <laughs> Any guys out there? I, I, I asked Sarah to marry, a, well, I shouldn't probably, well, yeah, I should. She's not here, I can embarrass her a little bit, right? You know, I had chased after her for three years before she finally agreed to marry me, and I kept saying that, you know, she's looking for better options. And she doesn't like it when I say that, but I, sometimes in my weakness, I wonder if it's true. And, and I have these dreams that maybe she would lie on my feet at night based on this. But... <laughs> so we don't know if this was a novel thing, that this was just something Ruth and Naomi cooked up, or is, this was a custom. But basically, what we do know, what's clear from the context, is this is Ruth saying... Wake up, Boaz, I want to marry you, right? She's read chapter 25 in Deuteronomy. She knows what Leverite marriage is. She has read God's word, seen the prescription, and she's acting now. She's taking initiative. I want you to see that. I think Matthew, when he's putting Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus, wants us to see that. Look in Jesus' family tree. Look in the good example and look at the initiative that Ruth is undertaking. Look at her loyalty. Look at her love. So I want you to see that, that she simply followed God's instructions. She found, she sought out the kinsman redeemer. She laid herself at his feet. She trusted that God would provide. She took action. Which begs the question, how often do we have the clear instructions of Scripture and we ignore them? We have a problem. God's prescribed the solution. And we neglect these common graces. We don't pray. We don't read our Bible. We don't make sure that we're going to church. We don't force our kids to go to church when we should. We neglect these common graces. We're given the mandate and the method of how to forgive, and yet we choose not to. Because our hearts are hard. We think we're right. No, I deserve it. It's me. It's my turn. They have to show the first. Is that the mark of a godly man or woman? No. Ruth shows us. We read the instructions. We follow the instructions. And then we await God's blessing. And that's exactly what she did. And she did it in faith. And I wonder how often we just don't believe that God's instructions are good enough to deal with our particular plight or problem. But Ruth is not like that. See how she takes God at his word 
and simply goes in faith. And it worked. There's lots of details to be sorted out, and you can finish the rest of the story of Ruth uh, this afternoon. I commend that you do it. All my kids are in children's ministry with my wife, so that's what we're doing this afternoon. We're going to read through the whole book, and I think you should too. But let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 13, and see how the story ended. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, no giggles, and the Lord gave her conception, and, the, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be your restorer of life and your, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than of seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this concludes the story of Ruth. A story that had all the makings of a tragedy, but instead resulted in triumph. It's the story of a young, courageous Moabite woman, a foreigner, an outsider, who was grafted into the family of God. And not just grafted into the family of God, but grafted into the line of David, Israel's greatest king. And Matthew wants us to see even more than that. This woman, this outsider, becoming an insider, was grafted into the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that should give us pause. What a legacy Ruth has. We read about her at Christmas. We celebrate her. What an enormous spiritual inheritance she left. And that's the story that Matthew has chosen to draw our attention to with this curious footnote. So we're going to conclude our time this morning uh, with the same question that we've been asking every week. What are we meant to see here? And I think the first thing that Matthew wants us to see is that God blesses ordinary faithfulness. He uses ordinary little things we do in righteousness and in faith. One commentator helps us see this. Again, from the, old, uh, the Tyndale Old Testament comment, uh, commentary. In one way, this is simply a tale of two women. It relates how one of them, Naomi, underwent much hardship, but eventually won through to peace and security. It tells how another, Ruth, attached herself firmly to her mother-in-law and to her mother-in-law's God and how she received the blessing of that God. But most of all, this is a book about God. It deals with unimportant people. There's no kings. There's no rulers. There's no presidents in this story. It deals with unimportant people and unimportant matters. But it deals with them in such a way as to show that God is active in the affairs of men. There's nothing too small for God to invest in. And God works out his purposes, works his purposes out, and blesses those, or them, that trust in him. God has a great plan, and that's really the story of Ruth. And it's actually the story of Ruth's God, as we've just heard. Uh, but we're to look at Ruth carefully, and we're to look at her choices. And she does have choice. She does have agency. And her actions done in faith positioned her 
to be blessed beyond all measure, to be part of, to be the great, 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 we don't know how many generations, grandmother of Jesus. That's pretty high-level reward. What a blessing. And that's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see that little things done in faith have great outcomes. I ask the question, like, do we have any idea what God is going to do with the little things that we do? You know, Mother Teresa famously says, I can do no great things. She's probably one of the greatest Christians of the 21st century. And she says, I can do no great things, only small things with great love. And look at her legacy. Think of the men and women who contributed to the, uh, the conversion of guys like Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon. We don't know their names, and yet they have a spiritual lineage that is incalculable. And in heaven, they're going to meet all the people that were saved through all the generations of all the people that Spurgeon helped or that Billy Graham helped, right? They get a share in that legacy, and so do we. We have no idea what our spiritual legacy is going to be, how God will reward and use and amplify the little things that we do in faith and in righteousness. You know, and this is partly the joy of Christian parenthood. I didn't know this was going to be a dedication day. But isn't that the joy of Christian parenthood, right? We have no idea what our parenting is going to do. We, we do what the Apostle Paul says, like we plant, we water, and we pray because God gives the growth. We have no idea what God can do with the little things that we have. It contributes to the terror of parenting too, right? Because we're not in control. Okay? But there's joy there. And there's also joy in Christian mentorship. And I think, you know, Matthew wants us to see that too. Ruth is not the only person in this story. What about Naomi? Her simple, righteous living inspires this young woman who then later on becomes the son of David, or the, uh, the great-great-grandmother of David. It's a legacy. So we should ask ourselves, are we going to be an uncle or auntie to someone in the faith, and then we can meditate on how God may multiply that blessing over time and over generations. I don't think Ruth or Boaz had any idea of what God was up to in their little insignificant story, which is cosmically significant because Jesus came from it. So I think that's the first thing I'd like us to see. Um, but I think the most obvious message from Ruth uh, is our second point, and that is that God has a plan and a future for the outsider. He has a plan to save the outsider. God's family is bigger than the Jews, and there's no doubt that that's one of Matthew's intentions with this genealogy, was to remind early Jewish Christians of this fact. Remember, that's his primary audience. Look carefully at the names in the genealogy. Tamar, where's she from? Just shout it out. She's a Canaanite. Right? Remember uh, Judah, he took Canaanite wives, so why wouldn't his son? What about Rahab? Where's she from? Jericho. Where's Jericho? She's a Canaanite. She's an outsider. What about Bathsheba? What's her nationality likely? The wife of Uriah the, the Hittite. So she's an outsider. And here we have Ruth, a Moabite, definitely an outsider. And yet all these women are grafted into God's chosen people. 
So much so that they are given the unique dignity of being in the line of David. That's incredible. That, that It's not just enough that God brings them in a little bit. No, no. He brings them in to the point that they are the ancestors of the greatest king of Israel. And Matthew is saying, look at this, guys. He's saying to first century Jews, he's saying, look at this. Get rid of your ethnocentrism. God loves the outsider and has a plan to bring them in. The Apostle Peter says it this way, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's no doubt that, that Matthew is poking at the Jewish ethnocentrism of his time. And he's pointing to these foreigners, these outsiders in Matthew's genealogy, as proof that they're in the family, that the, the, the fact that they're in the family line of the Messiah, that this is proof that God loves the outsider. And it's right about what, what Isaiah sings about in chapter 56, when he says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him and love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, and who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And Peter's buddy Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, the insider and the outsider. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's heart to the outsider, and it ought to be ours. The church has to be marked by multiculturalism and its racial plurality. That's tough in Aurelia, I get it, we're pretty white bread here, but we need to be intentional about inviting the outsider. I love, uh, I don't know, anybody else like Toby Mack? Toby Mack and the Mack is back, no slack on a DC jack that's tracked beyond comprehension. I believe I failed to mention, anyway, I won't start rapping. I'm not very good at it. But his band is called Diverse City because it's filled with diversity. Diversity. God loves it. God loves diversity of age, race, culture, gender, social status, all unified under the Lordship of Christ. And he, if that's his heart, it should be ours too. I think that's important. Matthew really wants us to see that in the genealogy. But he also wants us to see something else here. He wants us to look at Ruth's life, see her initiative, and see that those who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. In many ways, the story of Ruth is the story of any Christian. It can be legitimately read typologically, okay, using archetypes and types. Naomi kind of symbolizes the original people, the original chosen people, the Jews. Ruth is clearly symbolizing the outsider, the Gentile. And Boaz somehow, in, in a very pale symbolizes our Redeemer. 
He's a type of the future Messiah. And I'm convinced that Matthew intends us to see this redemptive story at Christmas. Because that's what Jesus is. And God is the God who takes the outsider and makes him an insider. He's the one that redeems Ruth from poverty. And therefore, how much more so does Christ redeem us from our spiritual poverty? And his people and his church have to be marked by that same impulse. You know, in the last two weeks, um, Pastor Paul asked me to participate in a social media podcast. Uh, And uh, you can get it on the TGC website if you want. But one of the things that came up in that podcast was how social media is um, taking our young ones, taking vulnerable people, and funneling them into unhealthy subcultures, right? You guys know what I mean by subculture? People, every human being has this innate need to be needed. We all want to belong. And if we don't fit into the large culture, we look around, we scan, we try to find a subculture where we can find home and validation and friendship. And uh, right now, in our culture, we're a subculture. And that's fine. It was that way in Jesus' time, too. We're not the majority. But ask yourself, what harmful subcultures are out there? Right? There's a gender for confusion subculture. Right? There's a cutting subculture. Right? What other subcultures are out there that are destructive and unhelpful, and lead away from eternal life. And, and the outsider is looking to be an insider somewhere. Are they looking to us? Are we the ones that are inviting the outsider in? I think that's really, really important. Matthew draws our attention to that at Christmas as we celebrate the Incarnation. We look through the genealogy and we see, aha, There's an outsider who became an insider. That's God's heart. It should be ours. How are we going to do this? We also need to know, uh, we also need to see an implicit warning in Matthew, including Ruth, and this story. Not everyone at the end of the story ends up in the family of God. Who's left on the outside and stays outside? Orpha, that's right. And that's her choice. There were three widows initially, and only two at the end. Recall the words of Ruth. She says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth is saved from her famine. She's saved from poverty. And she's saved to eternal life by faith because she called upon the name of the Lord. Meaning that she pledged her allegiance and agreed to live by his good rules, and his good lordship. But Orpha's not saved. She did not reach out. She didn't use her agency to reach out to God. Instead, she chose to go back to her old ways. I mean, in a group like this, we're always going to know somebody's has not reached out to God is the Orpha in this story. I want you to listen to the wisdom of the ancients contained in this story. 
This is the warning in Matthew's genealogy. The story is asking you, are you in? And are you? Because, friends, a holy God cannot abide our sin. The inventor of justice, the author of fairness, the creator of true morality, not relative morality that fails, he simply can't be with sin. Heaven is no place for selfishness, disobedience, jealousy, anger, unforgiveness, or any other mark of evil. And it's in every single one of us, including me and you. And I am convinced that this optimism that we see in our culture, that somehow we are going to pull ourselves by our bootstraps and make a human society that's full of love and joy and peace. Imagine, you know, the, the nonsense of the Beatles, right? Like, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We need external help. And the external help is through Christ Jesus. And he's shown us the way, amen? And so the question is, are you on the outside? Are you still hearing the words of God and rejecting them? Or are you feeling a stirring in your heart and wondering, I want to be on the inside. I'm done with my destructive subculture. I'm done with relying on my, myself. I'm sick of my own sin. I want out. I want in. <laughs> I want out of my junk. And I want into the kingdom. I want into Christ. Well, if that's you... Know that God offers a payment for sin, yours and mine. And that is the most glorious news of the incarnation. That is the best news of Christmas. It's the ultimate in empathy. Amen? Amen. Paul says it this way, For our sake he made him sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ knows our weakness, knows our pain but more than just knowing about it and being able to relate about it and being able to counsel about it. He's done something about it. He's lived a perfect life and a sacrificial death for us so that we can be with the Lord. And if you want this and you don't know how to do it, I am sure the guy next to you does. And if they don't feel comfortable, then come and talk to one of the elders. Keith is here. I'm here. Harry's here, I think. Is Harry here? Harry's not here. But there's others, so come and talk to one of us. Okay? Be like Ruth. Call out to God and be saved. Show the initiative. He's laid it all there for you. And as we close, I just need to address the family of God that is saved. Let's circle back to that verse that we just heard in Romans chapter 10. That glorious verse that reminds us that God loves everyone and wishes all to be saved. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true, but Paul's very quick to move on to something in the very next verse. How then will they call on him on whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. We learned that last week with Rahab, didn't we? Right? She had faith because she heard. Right? And that's our challenge this week. It's clear that we have to invite. We're charged to be the agents of the gospel. 
the tool that uses to invite the outsider in, the tool that God has chosen to rescue people from worldly destructive subcultures and into the eternal life-giving subculture of our church, of the church at large. So are you going to be strategic this year? Are you going to be fearless? Will you be a Naomi to a Ruth? Will you invite the outsider in? I think that's the question that Matthew is asking us in the genealogy. So let's pray. Father God, we know that we can't do any good thing apart from you. You are the good shepherd. You're the one who seeks the lost. You're the one who paid the price on the cross. You've, left, you've done all the hard work. Uh, Lord, we just need to reach out. We need to encourage others to reach out. And so, Lord, we ask for the privilege of being part of your plan to bring the elect in from every people, tribe, and nation. God, we thank you that you are a God who loves the diverse city. That you are a God who loves the outsider. That you love our loved our lost loved ones, even more than we do. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit in great measure to do your week, to do your work this week and this month and this Christmas. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.